We're in Matthew chapter 6, so if you have your Bible, we've been spending the entire summer looking at what's called the Sermon on the Mount, and so we are now almost directly in the middle of this sermon, and it's good for us to take a minute, based off what we're going to talk about this morning, to just think about what Jesus is saying and try to understand how we're doing in regards to his teaching. Uh, Let me share a quote with you from C.S. Lewis, and this was actually shared uh, with me by Kirk, and I, I find it helpful because if you're ever sitting under the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, you'll probably hear, this is the greatest sermon ever preached, which is true, but with anything that's great, uh, it's sometimes less than thrilling when you're going through it. And so C.S. Lewis uh, was once accused of not liking the Sermon on the Mount. It's like, well, you don't like the Sermon on the Mount, it's the greatest sermon ever preached. Well, if you really listen to it, you don't like it either because of what it actually does to your life. Look what he says. As to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if by caring you mean liking or enjoying, I suppose that no one actually cares for it, because who can like being knocked flat in the face by a sledgehammer? That's what this is supposed to do with an honest reading of it. To take the teachings of Jesus, the words of Jesus, and say, if you really want to follow me, If you really want to be a part of my kingdom, which is the whole movement of what we call Christianity, to take King Jesus and allow his kingdom to expand on earth, here's what this does to your life. And you read it and you think, this is great, until you think, I'm nowhere near this. And this morning, we're going to, I hope, ask ourselves three questions. So if you're a note taker, I actually have three questions for you this morning. As we go through the middle part of this sermon, I think three questions naturally come as you study what is really, in the middle of this sermon, three proverbs that Jesus is going to give. If you read what we're going to read this morning with a lens like you read the proverbs, it's like, here are some teachings that will help you understand by riddle, almost. And what he's trying to get his disciples to understand, and us this morning, and you as you consider this for your life, How do you have an absolute devotion and love for God that is genuine and real and has nothing to do with all of the things that we do in the name of religion? He says, my disciples are going to be blessed and they're going to be cared for and it'll have nothing to do with all of the ways that we try to impress people or try to look the part even though inside we're not the part. And so this morning, Jesus, I hope, will give us these three questions that will give all of us what you're really after, whether you know it or not. An actual relationship with God. A heart that is stirred to know him, is stirred to find him, is stirred to live for him. And if you don't have that, don't, don't, just don't bother with church. It's, It's pointless. What we're doing this morning, if it doesn't point us to and cultivate in us and drive us towards a relationship with God that comes from the desires of our heart, we're wasting our time. And so here are, here's the passage of scripture, and, and I'll pause to ask a question for each verse, and then we'll come back and, and talk about each question. So starting in verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's that riddle. We'll talk about it and we'll hopefully allow it to 
change some of the ways that we think about what Jesus is saying. Question number one, what are you seeking? What, what is the, the treasured possession of your life? What are you after in life? What are you seeking is question number one. The lamp of the body, verse 22, is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So question number two, how do you see the world around you? How do you view relationships and circumstances and the unfolding of history before us? What is your perspective and your view of the world and your life and Christ and God and people? So what do you seek? How do you see? And, num- and verse 24, now question number three, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon, that word for earthly possessions, wealth, treasure on earth, possessions and materialism and stuff that you can collect. Jesus says you can't serve both. So question number three is who do you serve? So the three questions that will, I hope, in answering these and allowing these questions to be questions that filter the way we live our lives will cultivate in us a genuine heart before God. Starting with question number one, what do you seek? Jesus says, don't lay up yourselves treasures on earth. And he gives us a reason for that because people take treasures and moths eat them and rust will destroy them. He says, find a treasure that is eternal, that will not perish with the perishing world that you live in. Context. We taught through Matthew chapter 6 leading up to this. Remember our sermon on hypocrisy. The whole sermon on hypocrisy could be broken down into what you're really after. Because for each religious act that Jesus will warn against hypocrisy for, he says, and there's a reward. He says, in your charitable giving, in your praying, and in your fasting, there is a way to do all of those things in the religious theater to be seen by men or to impress people or to show how spiritual you are on the outside because that's what people can see. Or you can do everything in secret. Your right hand won't know what your left hand is giving. You're going to go into your prayer closet, and when you fast, you're actually going to get a haircut and clean your face. And in doing everything in secret, you now have a reward from God who will reward you openly. And the whole dichotomy of the two positions was, where's your treasure? What are you really after in religion? Is it people and the glory you receive for yourself, or is it God and actually knowing him? And so now we come to this text that is oftentimes preached with, I think, some appropriate measure on giving. It's like treasures in heaven or treasures on earth. So church, you you read that and it's like, okay, invest into the kingdom with your time, your resources, and your money. And that's part of the message. But what Jesus is saying in context is, choose your treasure and choose it wisely. What are you after in your seeking today? Why do you lift your voice? Why do you stand? Why are you listening? Why are you taking notes? Why did you invite a friend? Why are you going to leave here and do what you do? Choose your treasure wisely. Because in all that we do, we are either treasuring God and we are here to be rewarded by 
the fruit of his spirit, the knowledge of his word, the understanding and the confidence and boldness and hope that we have by realizing that God is the beginning and the end and he has a plan to work all things together for good. That's a reward for your life. And the reason Jesus wants to identify the reward is for two reasons, twofold. One, if you choose your prize, your treasure, and the thing that you're after in life that is simply material, whether it's wealth or health or finances and possessions, Jesus says you chose a bad treasure because it's not actually a treasure. It's going away. I have a perfect real-time example of that. You may hear my voice is somewhat coarse because yesterday from 1230 to midnight, I was at a high school reunion. That was my 20-year reunion. I said it was my 40-year, and someone's like, you're not that old. I was like, no, I'm turning 40. I have a 20-year reunion coming up. It was yesterday. And you know what the weird thing was? It was like a lesson in fading treasure because the glory days are over, aren't they? <laughs> we rolled up. I was like, you used to have huge muscles. You used to have hair. Every girl liked you, and now I don't know so much. And I'm thinking of my own life. Like, it's fading fast the treasure of my youth and vitality and all the stuff that I lived for in high school, it was all distant memories. And we were like, I think I vaguely remember you kind of, but your name will be forgotten. And that's just the reality of the treasures that we live for so often, they come and they go so quickly and we live in this hamster wheel of treasure seeking. I have another example of that. A couple winters ago, I went into what was then our thrift store because my ears were cold. And so I was like, gotta find a, a hat for my ears, and I picked up this little beanie, paid the wage, went home. I'm like, hey, babe, what do you think about my new beanie? And she's like, I just donated that. <laughs> You're an idiot. <laughs> I literally just took that out of your house and gave it away, and you thought you found a treasure. You've heard it said, treasure plus time equals trash. Choose your treasure wisely because you don't want to live your whole life day by day by day seeking things that are slipping through your grasp. So many funerals that I do and you see what people were living for and you get reminded that unless they were living for Christ, they've got nothing to show for it. The other reason, twofold reason to choose your treasure wisely and this is where the riddle comes in and I... This really, I got to this verse, and you can ask. I was asking the office. I was asking, I was like, what does this, what is this getting at? Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Okay, treasure, heart, aren't they similar? Like, I love something, I treasure something. Here's why this is part of this beautiful moment in the Sermon on the Mount where so many things get put upside down. The Sermon on the Mount challenges you with a sledgehammer because it takes the normal way of thinking about things and it flips it on its head. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Really? It's blessed to be impoverished in my soul? Yep, because when you're poor, God will make you rich in his kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's an upside-down sermon. And he has moments where it's just more upside down. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst because you're going to get satisfied. If you mourn, you'll get comforted. And... In an upside-down nature, Jesus says, know your treasure because your heart's following it. Your prize goes before your passion, is what Jesus is saying. And that flies in the face of the default position of culture and thinking, because what do we say? My heart is my guide. My passion will point me towards my reward. And, and, and follow the math. Does it work that way? Well... 
Not so much. And first of all, Jesus, or the word says in Jeremiah, that the heart is deceitfully wicked. You give your heart the reins of your life, and it'll take you towards all sorts of stuff that are not good for your life. Here's a quote by, how many of you know who Anthony Bourdain is? is the, the hands go up. And I love Anthony Bourdain. He was a self-described lover of life. And for those born outside of the kingdom, that's a great model, what he did. He's like, I'm going to travel the world, and I'm going to go to exotic places and, and experience culture and eat food and gain millions of fans as I do it. It's like, that's a, probably the best life you can have as a heathen, <laughs> outside of God's kingdom. And what does he say about his own life? This is what he says. Uh, there's a guy inside of my head... And all he wants to do is lay in bed all day long, do drugs, watch movies, and old cartoons. That's where his heart takes him. So he says, my whole life is a series of strategies to avoid and outwit that guy. The whole thing. It's like, how can I make sure the guy in my head who controls my heart is not doing what he wants to do? Who's that guy for you? Who's that girl for you, ladies? There's someone inside your head that says, all I want to do is work every hour, every day, and make money and gain wealth, and I'll get to my family later, and I'll get to God's kingdom later. Your heart will lead you to your treasure. But the treasure is first. You have treasured your possessions, and now you'll work to do anything that you can. Or there's the the guy or girl that says, all I want to do is get to Friday. I hate my job. I hate my life. I don't like my friends. But if I can get to Friday, I can watch Netflix and I can be alone, and I can eat some food, and it'll be so nice. And you know what happens? The heart will get you there. You will value free time and alone time over people because your treasure is alone time, and your heart will follow. Jesus is saying, choose your prize so that you have the passion to go with it. And we get it all backwards, don't we? It's like, man, I wish I had more passion for life. Well, what are you living for? If you're living for nothing, you have no reason to get out of bed. So here's the opposite example that I was so grateful for in the timing of, of where we're at in culture. We're doing the 2020 Olympics in 2021, so it makes about as much sense as everything else. <laughs> and I'm just blown away what these people can do as feats of strength when you put your mind to something. It's like, look at those athletes. They're born with passion, and it's gotten to the Olympics. It's like, no, it hasn't. The Olympics gave them passion. Look what one Olympian said. She said, I dream of bending down on top of the podium and receiving Olympic gold medal around my neck. I close my eyes and I can see the crowd cheering and I listen for the national anthem. And then I go to practice. Did you catch it? Right there. I can see it. It's a gold medal. There's an audience full of people. They're cheering me on for the sake of our country. And when I close my eyes, I see that, and now I go to practice. She doesn't go to practice and just wind up at the Olympics. She has the Olympics on her heart. And now we understand what Jesus is saying. What do you value, and what do you treasure? If you treasure religion, then you're going to be passionate about religion. If you treasure self-righteousness, you're going to be passionate about yourself. But if you can close your eyes and get the heavenly vision for what God has set aside to honor you with your life, with the gift of the Spirit in your life, and in the same way you could see that distant day 
when you stand on the podium before God and you bend before him to lay it all at his feet and he crowns you with glory. And now you go to practice. Now you go pray. And now you have a vision that is big enough for the passion that you long for. There's the classic example of this is, is the apostle that we all look at. The apostle Paul, we look at him and it's like, what got into him? So much passion for the kingdom. He had passion that would journey him through shipwreck. Get back up and keep preaching. He had enough passion and drive for the kingdom that he would church plant everywhere he went. He would get beat and keep preaching. Raise up leaders and plant, and I gotta move on to the next one. I'm laying the foundation for Christ everywhere I go. And you may look at him and think, man, I just don't have that kind of passion. Well, his passion came from a heavenly prize. He had such a big vision for the reward that there was nothing that he wouldn't do for it. He said it in his own words. Look what he says, Philippians chapter 3. But what things were gained to me, I've counted lost for Christ. The treasures that the world and religion and esteem tried to put on me, I said, I don't want them. Give them back. They can rust somewhere else, not on my watch. I counted all loss. Yet, indeed, I count all things a loss for the excellence of of the knowledge of Christ. How are we doing in the first question of what are you seeking? Paul says, I counted it all a loss. He'll go on to say, by any means necessary, I want to experience the resurrected life. He was seeking Christ. He didn't think anything was worth treasuring over just knowing Christ and partaking in the sufferings of Christ and living his whole life to experience the day that if you follow Christ, you believe in, of resurrection. When all of these momentary afflictions that are weighted on our shoulders, that affliction to our soul, and they make you question all the treasures that you're collecting on earth, Paul says, they're this big compared to the weight of glory. And with that vision of my reward, I will do anything to know Jesus. So what are we seeking? What is our reward? Jesus said, for the joy set before me, he endured the cross with his eye on the reward of the inheritance of the kingdom to give you the right to be called sons and daughters because you received Christ. For that joy, he said, I I endure the shame, despise the shame and persecution. Eyes on the prize will endure. And that is how treasure establishes heart. Mothers, you know this, with your eye on the prize of holding your newborn, you endure labor. And believers, you know this. I'm revived by this message to think about the moment where we go and baptize. Let me just see that more clearly, Lord. When we accept into the kingdom more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 who are no need. And we come and we put people in the baptismal waters and they raise again with the symbolic newness of life. It's like, I'll, I will persevere to that beach. I'll make it through the mundane. And the missionaries among us and that we send and pray for, it's like, for that lost culture and that lost country and that lost person, I will endure everything. I'll sell what I have. I'll move my family. I'll go to hard mission grounds to endure because your God will always require a sacrifice. And that's true of 
the sacrifice that missionaries and pastors and believers make for the name of the gospel. And it's true also of all of the ways that none of us live this perfectly and we will sacrifice to get our alone time. And we will sacrifice to get a little bit more of the earthly treasure on our portfolio. So what are you seeking? And as you answer that question, Jesus now comes with the second riddle. Look what he says. Verse 22. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. Again, what is he getting at? And it gets even more confusing when he says, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of dark. If for the light that is in you is darkness, how great the darkness will be. How can light be darkness? Let's hold that and just think about what Jesus is saying that we can understand at least with anatomy and physiology. Your eye is the instrument that God gave you by which you take in all of the view that light will shine. The view of this sanctuary and the view of the people sitting next to you, your, your eye is probably working by letting the light invade so that you can make impressions of what's happening around you. Okay, now let's take it to Christ. Christ says, I'm the light of the world. The prophecies of Christ said that there were people in great darkness and they saw a great light. Colossians says that when you give your life to Christ, you're transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the sun, who is light. So there's something happening in the view of Christ that we can relate to what happens physically. Turn off the lights, I can't see, but turn on the lights, I see everything. And now we have Christ, the visible image of the invisible God. I love what C.S. Lewis says about Christ. He says, I believe in Christ as I believe that the sun has risen. Not because I see it, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. There's an interesting creation theology that C.S. Lewis is helping us see. The sun, I don't just believe in the sun, I believe in everything because of the sun. It shines light on all of the ways that we interpret the world around us. And he says, that's how I believe in Christ. When I see Christ, I see everything else. Living parable. I love when the Lord is making me wrestle with a verse and then gives me a story that happens in my life that helps me see this. So this week, um, God using fools for Christ, I completely lived up to that by backing into someone and damaging their car. So I was like, I got out of my car and I was like, great, this is going to be a lesson that I'll use for a sermon. I had an awesome attitude. <laughs> Did not happen. I was like, I'm an idiot. How am I going to pay for this? What am I going to say to this guy? And so we get on the phone and we, you know, exchange information and talk the next day. And he says, hey, uh, just want to let you know that I ain't worried about the, the dent and no issue. Just not going to, I'm not going to worry about it. You can just go ahead and scratch that one up to a, a whoops-a-daisies and move on. And I'm like, this is a nice car. This is not like a beater car. And he's like, yeah, it's okay. And I kept trying to talk him out of it, you know, when you feel bad for the mercy that you receive, kind of a theological point. I'm like, come on, let me do something. Like, I got to help or do. And he's like, just, you're forgiven. And probing him and pressing him, I'm like, why? Why do you want to not fix your car? And he said, well, a couple of years ago, I hit a guy. And he got out of the car, and he saw a big dent, and he looked at me, and he goes, not worried about it. You can go ahead. And then the guy who's now forgiving me was like, I was so moved by that that I decided to try it. And so here we are. 
And, you know, the world calls that paying it forward. But what we can see now is he got the light of forgiveness. And by that moment of forgiveness, he can now see forgiveness. He now sees it other places. He got the moment where God's amazing gift of compassion was shined on his life. And then he said, I want to shine it. That's why Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us as we forgive. Experience, we want to experience the light of your forgiveness and by which we become lights of forgiveness. When you see Christ, you see everything else. And now we study him and we, we understand the way of Christ and we try to know more about him so that we can see forgiveness and mercy and compassion and humility and kindness and love and self-sacrificial giving all over the place because we saw it in Christ. That is what Jesus is getting at when he says, what do you see? What do you see when someone hits your car? What do you see when someone runs into you and inconveniences you? And where God would see a moment of compassion and mercy, your flesh sees a moment of wrath. And the question is, what do you see? Do you see with the light of Christ? Or are we walking in a religious theater that is actually very dark? And with that question, we now read again verse 23 because there's a riddle here and I, th- I want to give two answers. If your eye is bad, you're not seeing forgiveness. You're not seeing compassion and mercy. You're not seeing the gospel on display, the hope of the gospel working in any broken relationship, working in any lost soul. You don't see that. All you see is bad news headlines. Your eye is bad. You don't see the power of redemption that, that could reach your enemy. All you see is an enemy. Your eye is bad. If your eye is bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Two answers. One, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And then in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill. Let your light shine before men. So he's saying you have light, but if the light is actually swallowed up by the darkness of your religious theater... If the light is actually something you're using for an earthly treasure, if you're using the light of God's amazing gift of giving compassionately as a way to give so that people see you, if you're using the light of God's presence as a way for people to know how well you pray, it's getting dark. And how great that darkness is, is a reminder to all of us that the worst kind of darkness in this world is the darkness that comes veiled in light in the name of God that actually has nothing to do with him at all. We all know that. And history will tell you the crimes of the church and the people who said, in God's name, I bring darkness. That is great darkness. Hypocrisy is great darkness. Religious darkness is sometimes the worst. I heard a story recently of a missionary who was going into a tribal community in Africa. And that's always a challenge. It's always a challenge to bring the fully cultural adaptable gospel from another culture. It it, it will work, but you have to be gentle and you have to bring it in a cup by which they can drink. And that takes relationship and time. So it's always a challenge, but this was a particularly challenging tribal moment because they'd had an experience with missionaries before. And as this tribal leader was talking to the missionary and explaining why he was so against people coming into their village, he told a story. 
said, you know, the last people that came in and they told us about Jesus, they brought all sorts of gifts and the kids ran. And he noticed as he watched from afar that one of the people picked up a child and passed her phone to someone else and said, will you please take my picture? Fair enough, take pictures, I love them. And she looked at the picture and says, you know, this really wasn't the angle I was looking for. And after about four or five tries of, you know, holding the, 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 the village child just right, she found the perfect picture and she put the child down and she walked away. And it's a drastic story of something that can be so easily a, a snare of the gospel is that we're actually doing it for ourselves. And this is why Paul says in, in Romans, because of you, the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God. Because you say one thing and do another. Because you say you love us, but you're actually loving us for likes. That's a great darkness. Here's a more hopeful or a more inspiring way to read this scripture, which I hope we're warned by the first and we're totally excited about the second. He says, if, therefore, if the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? If God gives you the light... You've seen Jesus. You understand the love of God through the cross and the empty tomb is the power of God to save. You have eternity written on your hearts and the promise of your name written in heaven. You have light to share with those who are in despair, who are still lost in their sin, who have not heard the gospel. If that light isn't coming out of you, then where you go, where God wants to illuminate himself through you is dark. And it's a great darkness. It's a great darkness in our world right now, and I have fallen into the own, my, my own version of thinking, man, this place is going to hell in a handbasket. You read the news, you talk to people, and it's division, and it's rumors of war, and it's rumors of sickness, and, and all of this stuff, and it's like the world is so dark. And then you read this, and it's like, so be a light. Be the opposite of darkness. Because without believers showing the light of God to the world, the world is a very dark place. Uh, just another moment where this kind of came alive to me as we were traveling from Boise to New York. We actually stopped by one of my favorite stops was actually in Missouri. Shout out to you if you're from Missouri. Great state. All the states were great. Um, but Missouri specifically had a, um, a cavern tour. It was called Memorick Cavern. And this is allegedly where Jesse James and his gang hid out after, you know, being on the run from Johnny Law. So my 12-year-old self was like, this is so cool. <laughs> my daughters were like, who's Jesse James and why do you care? We go all the way into these, this little cavern hideout. We get like a mile in there and it's deep and it's dark and it's the only light was coming from the lantern of the tour guide and she was telling us all about it. And she said, now, for just a brief moment, I'm going to turn off my light. I want you guys to see how dark it gets. And she did it. It was only four seconds, but it was absolute black. And my kids were freaking out. And I was like, yes, like, this is awesome. And then the lights go back on. With one light, we saw everything. You take that one light away and you see nothing. And now here it is for you, believer. You are one light for someone. That's all they got. It's like God said, you're going to be the light of the gospel for your neighbor and for your enemy and for your workers and for your, your employees and be a light. And if you're not a light, there's no hope for them. There's darkness all around. 
and we're arguing and we're bickering. It's like there's people living in the caverns of their own hideouts and the believers who have the lantern aren't shining it. How great the darkness is when God's people, who are the hope of the world, the church preparing the way for the coming of our Lord. If we're not a light, there's no light. If we're not preaching the message of love and kindness and joy and patience and long-suffering, if we're not proclaiming the glory of God that is worth everything to receive and no treasure can compare, then of course darkness is going to be on the rise. So the second question, how do you see? How are you viewing the world? Is the darkness something that you shine your light into? Or is the darkness something that invades your own heart? Question number three, who do you serve? No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Sorry, the Olympian does not get to have the vision of watching cartoons all day and the gold medal. It won't happen. You serve one and you hate the other. In your own life, you don't get both treasures. You cannot fully be committed to a life that just wants an earthly portfolio and also give all of your glory, all the glory and all devotion to the Lord. There's, a, there's another story, this is a biblical story, so much more profound of this moment that every one of us should probably relate to. This is the moment in Mark chapter 10 when who we call the rich young ruler approaches Jesus and says, how do I get it? Topic of conversation. The kingdom of heaven is now, the kingdom of heaven is eternal, and I want in, tell me how. He was rich, he was young, and he was a ruler. Three treasures that will probably summarize every other treasure that you could find as a subcategory. And then you add the fourth to it, which is the first response Jesus gave this man. What does the law say? And he recites it well. And he says, do it. And he says, I've been doing that for my youth. So now you have religion. From those four, you have every competing treasure encapsulated into one seeker's question. The treasure of youth, which we all want to hold on to, the treasure of wealth, the treasure of power, and the treasure of being a religious person. People think you're great, you look great on the outside. You've done it since your youth. And yet all four of those treasures, even combined, we're lucky if we get one. And this man had all four, still left him wanting. It's the lesson that Jesus is saying. Those treasures is not what you're made for and it won't work. And so what does Jesus say to him? Go sell everything that you have, give it to the poor and follow me. A unique moment in that conversation with that man. So the lesson this morning is not that you would sell everything, give it to the poor and, and radically shift your devotion to Jesus. What Jesus is really getting at for him and for all of us is have no treasure but me. Serve nothing else. Don't serve your identity in wealth or power or religion. You, you sell all of that, make good use of it by giving it away. 
and follow me so that I'm your only treasure and now you have your answer. Here's the reality. Who you serve answers all other questions. How you answer this question answers what you treasure, what you're seeking, and it answers how you see the world. So the, 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 the question of all today, tomorrow morning, and for the rest of your life is who do you actually serve? It's a question for everybody. Who am I serving right now? Serving a, a, a congregation to make you feel good about church and get you to come back next week. It's a temptation. Who are you serving? You're here because your wife told you to come? You're here because you feel bad? You're here because you really just need a little bit of a moral pep talk so you can get back on your way because you're not really liking the rut you're in? Find out who you're serving and you'll find your treasure. Find your treasure and you'll find your passion. And what the, the, the message of this morning is, is there is no greater thing that you can do with your life. There's no greater treasure, reward, passion, joy of your heart than to hear that the Lord God who made heavens and earth and you with the counted number of hairs on your head says, follow me. And this is what we'll get to next week because Jesus promises you answer this question with service to God and his kingdom alone. And the promise for next week is he will add everything else to you. So I end by giving you these three questions and I hope that you can answer them in a moment of worship before God now. What are you seeking? How do you see the circumstances of your life in this world? And who are you serving?